Well, Roger that. This only took 18 months. Sorry. 46,000 emails and messages, but we <laughs> finally got it done. By God, Patrick Reed Johnson is on Bonehead Weekly. Welcome. <laughs> and Thank I'm you. the only one with color in today's episode. I might have. <laughs> well, Patrick and I dress like normal people, and you have a banana on your hand. It's I a corn. Just- it's from there's, it's from the state of Illinois, actually. Oh, there you go. There's a there's a story behind the constant black T-shirt thing, um, which you will never you probably have never seen an interview. I did not hear this one without a black T-shirt. And it was because in 2012, when my ex-girlfriend Morgan Flores and I and, and a bunch of other uh, patrons and, 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 and saints and helpful people that were trying to help us get 52577 across the line. We went on something called the Hearts of Dorkness tour. I've actually got it down here to ask you about it. So this is perfect. Well, and what happened was I decided pretty quickly that that since we were shooting all this documentary footage, we had GoPros in the car on the on the on the Ford Pinto and we had a, a thing called Large Marge, this big uh, RV that had an editing suite mm-hmm. in it and uh, the rest of our camera crew and there were com- cameras on that and another chase car uh, with uh, James Gillette or Gillette. Sorry. Hi, James. <laughs> I, I like to call him Gillette because it's French and it's cool. But anyway, James, James, you, you, you can look him up. He's the guy who goes around and like finds all these movie locations and like photographs himself at them. And, and yeah. gets, you know, it's, it's a great, it should be a series anyway. Um, so he was on board and, and, but I realized if I just wore the same damn black t-shirt every single day of this, what was meant to be like three weeks that turned into almost like a th- three four month trip yeah um that we could cut footage together from any day of the trip and you'd never know whether it <laughs> you know we could just assemble whatever we wanted and i got so used to it it was just it just became the uniform i i know i own like you know 700 of these you know so it's like that's all i do that's all i wear that's it well that's chad it. when chad and i have been we're he's my longest relationship we met in college Congratulations. Yeah, yeah, he's my hetero life mate. So as we were talking, well, as you were sitting there, Chad, how many black t-shirts did you own? Uh, oh, me? Uh, yeah. You, I, I, you I, I, still own, I still own a ton. I the mean, I, I wear brand. Yeah. consistently over the years. I, this one yeah. is about 15 years in. I've almost yeah. always did bonehead with this. But yeah, we get it. We understand. Now, I, we pride ourselves so you answered one of my questions, but we pride ourselves in trying to ask a question that no one else has asked. It was kind of hard to do that. So I have more of a comment question. Okay. It is easy enough to say you're a Star Wars fan. I'm not even <laughs> going to comment about that. We're going to get to a little bit in a second. I am too. Here's where I've, I call bullshit. You don't have any action figures. Wait, that's not true. Now I, you, have, you I literally have one. You see the level I've been taking? <laughs> I have one. One. What I have it? a Jawa that was given to me just by my daughter um, a couple months ago. And the reason I have it, I cannot tell you. It's a secret, and it's a big secret. Okay. It has to do with something I might or might not be writing right now. Um, but, well, but you also have an interesting hat on that could go with a big secret. What? No, 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 no. <laughs> Anyway, I have a Jawa action. That's the only, now, by the way, I was one of the many kids who was excited to get that empty box 
under the Christmas tree in the Christmas of 1977. The promise. Yeah, the promise box. Um, and, and I did get those figures, which I promptly either lost or the dogs ate them or I burned them or blew them up in some, you know, Super 8 movie or something. I, I, I mean, I, they, I'm sure they would be worth $100,000 now, but at, at, this, at that point they were just like these awful action figures. They were terrible. I mean, they yeah. were just terrible. And all I cared about was were they good or not. I didn't care about whether they were collectible. Yeah. Nobody knew that there was a thing called collectible back then. So, do you know the director, William Malone, Bill Malone? Sure. Of course. We've had Bill on the show, and Bill went off on a tirade about we had to build our own damn toys. That's true. It's pretty. I mean, before 77, there was a few, but if you wanted something, by God, you had to build it. And we all ended up out at Hollywood making models and and masks. You wanted you want you, you wanted an eagle lander, scratch build it. You wanted yep. you know, the Millennium Falcon, scratch. Build. Actually, oh man, uh, I don't have it in front of me. Wait, hang, stand by. No, no, literally no. stand by. It might be literally thirty seconds of black. Is that okay? I love you. Go. You stand go. by. You go. You crazy bastard. Right back. Hang on. Oh. We'll talk to we'll talk to Hal. Right back. Hal. Yeah, Hal's floating in the back. Behind if you're me. listening to this, he has a Hal. Chad's right, floating in the darkness, right, Chad? Yeah. <laughs> and he keeps telling Chad he needs to burn things. Oh. I could probably cut this out later. I may leave it on. It depends on what we're talking about. When he comes back, if he happens to listen to this, he's from Illinois. Yeah, no, Wadsworth. Oh, look at you. It might seem like a bit, but it's not a bit. That's okay. Yeah. I'm excited. All right. All right, show that. I've never done this for any other interview, but I'm showing you now. Oh, thank you. Stand by. Yeah. <laughs> now, big deal. So what? MPC, AMT kit. Uh-huh. Star Wars. It's missing the radar dish. There's a panel missing in the front. There's a... Okay. No big deal, right? Yeah. Right. Wrong. What is it? <clears throat> one of three uh-huh built by ilm uh-huh oh. for george and gary kurtz my dear friend and producer of 52577 to do previs on empire oh really two of these are sitting in the archive at the skywalker ranch and the third is here with me now Oh my, that's amazing. Patrick, that's amazing. But now I've got a question. How did you get it? Did Gary give it to you? Gary gave it to me. When we were preparing, okay, we were prepping to shoot the ILM sequence in 52577. Uh And and me being a big fan fan of hanging foreground miniatures, Mm -hmm. there was a moment where my character is meant to go walking through. I mean, it's one big continuous shot going through ILM, seeing all of the making of Star Wars in one shot, mm-hmm. or at least the ILM contribution. And we had the Death Star surface figured out. We had the TIE Fighter. We had the Death Star. We had the X-Wing. We didn't have a Millennium Falcon because we just didn't have one at the time. And we, and what we had was a big empty box because when I got there, they were packing up all the models to ship off for storage. Yeah. And I saw the Millennium Falcon half submerged in, you know, raffia, you know, uh-huh. ready to ready to be sealed up and sent away. So I thought, well, what if we, you know, what if we just do a, a foreground miniature since it can pass between, you know. So Gary said, well, here, I've got one. So he pulled 
that out of storage and said, here, take it. And, and, you know, and I, so we looked at, we tried, we looked, it was, it was not big enough to pull off the, the, the image that we wanted, but it sat in my office for the rest of the period. It was, it was sort of like a, and he said, you know what, it's, this is consider it a champagne bottle broken against the side of your movie, you know, <laughs> take this and you know, it's, it's a good luck charm. And, so how many uh, times did you go into your office and just go look at that and go, I shit, should, how did I, I get that? Not only did I not do that and I should have, because I'm just not really a collector type of guy, uh-huh. but we actually lost it for, <laughs> we lost his model. Well, first one of the art, department people brought their puppy their brand new adopted puppy to the set overnight and left it there because they didn't want to have to transport him back to Chicago and back out to the set and the rolled up original mylar poster the original you know coming to your galaxy next summer that Gary also let me borrow we got there the next day and it was just fragments of my life. Oh, oh, oh. You know, it was just like, no. Right. But luckily the millennium Falcon was on a higher shelf. Um, But I, but, but at some point it got put into storage and then moved to this box and that storage unit and that storage unit. And we, we lost track of it. We didn't know where it was. And then, Oh my gosh, literally, I think it's two years ago now. Um, one of my children, uh, Lonan, uh, was going through some boxes in their mom's storage shed yeah. or whatever, a storage basement or whatever. We're separated. Anyway, uh, and said, hey, I found these a bunch of models. And it was a bunch of Space Invaders miniatures and a bunch of uh-huh. other stuff. And they, and they said, and there's this like Millennium Falcon model kit that's pretty shitty, but you want it and i was like ah, ah, yes <laughs> you know so that's my retirement bring the bastard here yeah so if anyone's interested so so can i so about that story and i'm not kissing your ass that's all right uh, i am a Kiss star away. wars fan i am a star wars fan but when you said that you pulled out space debater miniatures sorry that's okay <laughs> when you said you pulled out space invader miniatures i'd have been like oh, oh. Well, it's funny, I, the, and and I and the fact that I got those back, there was a collector who had gotten in touch with me right about yeah. the same time and said, "Are there any miniatures from Space Invaders still around?" And I said, "It just so happens there are about five boxes full of them." Um, oh man! You know, and uh, funny story, funny little yeah. Please slide. keep going. Um, so love the you know, John Knoll was visual effects supervisor. It was his first yeah. visual effects supervising job was on, on Space Invaders um, because he and I grew up together as model makers and mm-hmm. best pals and best men at each other's weddings and stuff. And when it came time, to, you know, when, when it was time, I don't know if you saw the, the little documentary early on with the Mandalorian where they were talking about how they wanted to go back to using miniatures and mm-hmm. they were building the Razor Crest and suddenly John Knoll started showing up at me. He's going, oh, you're going to do a miniature? Uh, can I get involved? You know, and they're yeah, like, yeah. Oh, sure, you know. And and so he built this motion control rig in his garage, you know, uh, which that's what John does. And John calls me up one day and he goes, um, you know, the Razor Crest wasn't ready and I needed to test it. So I uh, grabbed the uh, asteroid patrol ship from Space Invaders that I have. And no. the very first test shot for the Mandalorian is oh. our spacecraft from Space Invaders going, doing, 
you know, the, the, that first pass they show at that yeah. Comic-Con thing. Yeah. There's a version of that that they don't show in that documentary that was earlier that was our spaceship from Space Invaders doing that move. That is amazing. Yeah, that was really so cool. cool. Oh, uh, anyway, you got me totally off top. I, I'm loving the conversation. So when we're when I was doing the deep dive, I was trying to pick your brain as a, as I'm watching interviews and listening and thinking. And then I'm, we're familiar with your films, of course, we're familiar with your work. And I want to get to Dragonheart in a minute. But what I was curious about is there's a lot of talk, and it's because of the movie about Star Wars. Right. But I'm more interested in some of the what I call bugs that bit you before Star Wars when you're growing up of like what was that thing? And and maybe I missed it, but I didn't see a lot of it in a lot of interviews. Yeah, uh, they don't like, usually go that far back, but the truth of the matter is it it, it well the tr the real truth is it began with something called Fireball XL5. Okay, um, go, go for it. Which, which was, I don't know, 1962, 61. Uh, it it might have been made in 1960, but they were showing it in 62 on like WGN in Chicago. Yeah. And I was born in 62. And the, the, my parents tell me the first show I ever imprinted on was Fireball XL5 with, you know, Jerry Anderson and the, you know, Super Marionation and, you know, uh -huh. cool little miniatures. And, you know, and then there was, Thunderbirds and you know uh, Stingray and all the, mm -hmm. all the all that cool stuff and and but then in 1968, you know I'm six years old and uh, my dad says we're going down to see a movie in downtown Chicago. Okay, cool, great, let's go. And it was Stanley Kubrick's 2001: A Space Odyssey. Yeah, I was six and my DNA was reoriented mm -hmm. by this film. And when it was over as they were carrying me out, because I was barely awake, but I was also completely awake. In other words, in, in my head, I was awake. In my body was like, oh, I got a bed, I'm six. It's, you know, midnight. They're carrying me out and I said, I'm gonna direct movies someday. And they're like, okay, just finish kindergarten and we'll talk about this later. <laughs> and it, that was it. I yeah. mean, that was the moment I knew I was going to make movies and everybody laughed and my parents laughed and the, my brothers and sisters laughed and my friends at school laughed. And I was like, okay, but that's what I'm going to do. So that's what I did. I just started stealing my dad's super eight movie camera when he was at work and blowing up my model trains and setting fire to my airplanes and, you know, and, you filming shark attacks in the swimming swimming yeah. pool and you know all all the all the insane stuff that's in the movie um 525 77 yeah and planet of the apes came but it was it was it, yeah. it was really it was planet of the apes it was 2001 a space odyssey then it was the andromeda strain then it was and silent running yep. and it, it marooned and you know and it just kept Snowball, you know, Space 1999, the UFO, the whole, well, UFO, then Space 1999. And at first, I was massively interested in visual effects more than I was interested in anything else. The director, yeah, he's just some guy who they, they let him, you know, talk to the actors. And me, it was like, well, how do they do the spaceships? You know, and that that was kind of my, my key, you know, and that was where I was, you know, building models in the basement and, you know, and, 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 just, and just trying to imitate as best I could what I was seeing. Right. And it wasn't, you know, it took a minute.
for me to actually wake up to the fact that, oh, wait, there's drama involved, there's writing involved, there's acting involved, you know, by the time the action of 525.77 takes place, I'm still in a, in, a, in a kind of effects track until yeah. I meet Steven Spielberg and Doug Trumbull and these various people and I and my brain gets melted by being on the set of Close Encounters and Star okay. Wars and you know but I it, it, it's fascinating to me but also the second part of what is fascinating to me is that this does you're out there you come back and then you go but and this is and by the way you're very talented so not to say that you're lucky but there is a certain amount of luck oh huge that, amount of luck that model builders were so in demand when you go back well that was the thing i mean that's the crazy part i mean that you can able to make that next you know you're at least able to be employed within a week right well, yeah, well here's yes exactly i mean here's the thing when i first went out unlike in the film i didn't okay i was actually only 15 uh-huh. when i took the first trip and yeah. and Herb Lightman introduced me to Steven and Doug Trumbull and the guys making Star Wars and all these other amazing people. And so it's really three years before I then jumped in my Ford Pinto and drove to Los Angeles. In the movie, it's collapsed mm-hmm. into the idea that it's my senior year and it all happens then and I get in my car and drive. Because right? it's a movie. It's a movie and yeah. who wants to watch three years of my life, right? So, um, and they went by like that because I was singularly devoted from that moment that I returned from Los Angeles to just getting the hell out of there, out of Wadsworth, Illinois and getting back to Hollywood. Um, it, and as it happened, because Star Wars had come out while I was still you know, in high school, within months, every major studio, all they wanted to do was try to repeat this miracle of box office mania. And so they, they were all about movies with miniatures and special effects. Every find every available hand to man this ship. And, and, and suddenly we were, I mean, people like me who had just arrived, even if we were brand new, but we had any skill at model making, we were suddenly these, like, I don't know, it was like we were explorers in the new world and the natives were like oh fire you know and and they would send us i mean you know i got my my friends and i got picked up to and sent to wilmington north carolina to work on king kong lives you Uh know and they were paying us you know fifteen hundred dollars a week in 1985 dollars yeah plus 750 dollars in cash for per diem a week you couldn't you had you would have to be a drug lord to spend $750 a week in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1985 or 86 or whatever it was. I can't believe. Why did you go crazy with the money? Well, we did. I bought everything I ever wanted. I bought a DX, a a Yamaha DX7 synthesizer with, which at the time was like owning Emerson, Lake and Palmer, you know, it was like, (laughs) well, I I meant more. I I was just saying out of the actual like blow and shit that would kill you. But I didn't see, here's the thing. I didn't do drugs and I I didn't, I drank a little, but I didn't, I didn't have the habits that would normally, you know, all right, kill me and spend all my money. So did you go full Don Johnson though, with all this money? 
here's the thing what I did. My father <laughs> didn't approve of me at the time becoming a filmmaker. He wanted yeah. to become a doctor like himself. And he kind of disowned me. And That's tough. by the time within within a couple of years of that, I was making more money a week when you amortize it. Yeah. Than he as the chief of anesthesia for a major hospital in Los Angeles. I was making more money building miniatures for movies at that period in Hollywood. Right. Yeah. And I wasn't even one of the greats. I was a junior model maker. I mean, mm -hmm. I, but I worked for the greats. I worked for Mark Stetson and I worked for, you know, I worked for Doug, Douglas Trumbull. I worked for, uh -huh. you know, I worked, I worked with and around all the great Richard Urisich, all these people, you know, I was, I was in all of those places that you needed to be, to be part of that greatness. But yeah. I was still the guy who only had six tools in my chest, you know, and, 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 and had only, you know, kit bashed a bunch of spaceships when I was a kid, but I learned quick and I could draw and I could, and, 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 and I had ideas for how to do effects. And pretty soon I was helping out and becoming like a second unit effects director and pretty soon an effects supervisor. And, you know, mm -hmm. it just, it kind of transformed while I was writing screenplays, you know, and I, I sold my first screenplay to 20th Century Fox when I was 19 years old. Really? Yeah. You were 19. 19. And wow. by the way, when this happened, what happened was I was at a Hollywood party. I was 19 years old. I was at, and I don't know, somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody said, yeah, bring your friend along. And I was at some way up on the top of a mountain at some gigantic estate, standing in a corner like a potted plant, you know, yammering to anyone who would listen with my sci-fi movie ideas. And, and this one kid that was there was listening to me. He goes, wait, hey, hang on a second. And he goes over and he grabs this major producer. Yeah. And he drags him over to me and he says, do that, th say that thing again that you just said to him. And so yeah. I did. And he goes, meet me tomorrow at 20th Century Fox, 10 a.m. in the in the office of the president of production, Richard Berger. I have a I have a put picture deal there. I can make anything happen I want. We're making this happen. I was like, <clears throat> right. Yeah. And so I met him the next day and I go into this room and there's Richard Berger, president of production for 20th Century Fox. I'm 19 and I've never done, I've never pitched. I've never, what I did was in high school, I did humorous interpretation and dramatic interpretation. I knew how to stand up in front of people and act. So I got up and I acted out my movie. Yeah. I played all the characters. I did all the sound effects. We started the Great Rift Valley. A ship goes, you know, and I did this whole thing and I ran around the room and I spent like 15 minutes acting out the film. And when it was over, he's just sitting there staring at me and I'm like, oh shit. And, and he slowly reaches for his phone without taking his eyes off of me, picks it up, starts dialing. And I'm, sh I'm thinking, oh shit. He's calling security, security right? Yeah. And he goes, David, get in here. Then the door opens and this goofy guy with big hair and a ill-fitting moth-eaten suit and a yellow pad and a pen and comes running in. It's David Madden. Now, if you don't know, if you do know who he is, this will mean something. And if you don't, I'll tell you in a minute. So David Madden comes in and he's this guy who's got a broom closet office. He's a junior development exec and he sits down. He goes, okay, what? And Richard Berger goes, do the, the, do, do that thing. Do, do what you just did. So I did it again. Uh -huh. When it was over, David Madden is sitting there staring at me and he hasn't written anything on his pad. And he looks at 
and Richard Berger, Berger goes, what do you think? And he goes, no. He goes, don't, don't, just don't give him a deal. Just, just rent a theater and charge people to watch him do that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, what does that mean? And they both jump up. They, it was like, it's like a comedy. It's like something out of the monkeys or they grab mm-hmm. me and they say, come with us. And they drag me down the hallway to a door that says Sherry Lansing. Sherry Lansing was the first female president of a mm-hmm. major studio. They bust in. The secretary goes, um, she's not really. And he goes, they're like, no, 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 no. We're going in. And they bust, up, bust open her door into her office. We, they drag me in. And she's sitting there in a cheerleading outfit. She's got a mini skirt, a cheerleading you know, shirt, pom-poms, saddle shoes, with her feet up on the desk and an ice pack on her head. <laughs> and I'm thinking, fuck, man, Hollywood's out of control, right? And, yeah. and she goes, what? And, and they're like, what are you doing in a cheerleading outfit? She goes, it was the Taps rap party, okay? I don't know if you know the movie Taps. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, yes. The, 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 they had had the rap party the night before, and she had just shown up to work at whatever it was, 10 a.m., having not gone home from the party. In her rap party, Taps University, whatever, you know, whatever the university was, the military cheerleading outfit that she had made for it. Right. And she goes, what? And Richard Berger goes, do the do the do do that thing. And so I start doing it again and I get about a minute into it. She goes, stop, stop, because stop screaming. She goes, I don't know what this is, but I but if you guys believe in it, I believe in you. Yes, you have a deal. (laughs) So now they grab me and they drag me down the hallway at the old 20th Century Fox Executive Building all the way to Legal Affairs. And on the way down, it's like it's like they're taking Roy Neary into the mothership and closing college. It's like, do you have uh-huh. any liver disease? Do you have these things? You know, what's your what's your date of birth? You know, and they, they find, one of the things is, how old are you? And I said, 19. And they're like, Argh! they stop me. They look at me. They go, OK, whoa. No, no, no. You're not 19. I said, no, I am 19. And they're like, you can't tell anyone you're 19. Nope. Why? Because no one who writes movies in Hollywood is less than 35 years old. It just doesn't, we don't, we don't hire teenagers or 20 somethings. They don't write. It just, you gotta just don't, just don't answer if anyone asks. Okay. And they meant it. They were serious. They were literally freaked out that anyone would find out that they had hired a 19 year old. Right. So yeah. I go down, I, I sign the papers, and next thing I know, I'm getting calls from agents that I've never heard of because the word has literally gone out from legal affairs to the world through assistance or something. There's there's new meat on the market, right? And suddenly I've got this, you know, this de- development deal at 20th Century Fox at age 19, right? Yeah. So we write, you know, we write two drafts of the script and then the studio gets bought and all the executives, including Richard Bergen and David Madden, are all fired. And they are like, yeah, we're putting you in turnaround. And I'm like, what does that mean? Turnaround sounds kind of weird. And he goes, you're in turnaround. And I said, so it means we're going to go a different direction. Yeah, you're done. We're you're done. done. What does that mean? Done for now? No, the script is yours. Take it back. Go go with God. Good luck. And now I'm back in the model shop, you know, and all the guys I had been like, see ya. They're all like, oh, welcome back to the model shop. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, 
So now I'm a model maker again, and then I have to write another script and sell it. And I've got this kind of, you know, model maker, screenwriter duality happening for the next few years until a couple of my friends said, Patrick, focus. Mm -hmm. They were uh, Stephanie Ang and John Knoll both said, could you please just concentrate on what it is you really want to do? So I sat down with my old friend, Scott Alexander, and I wrote this goofy thing called Martians. Mm -hmm. And we pitched it all over Hollywood and everyone said, you can't make, and we said, we only need $2 million and we'll make this movie And there. And we went everywhere, including to Disney. And Jeffrey Katzenberg said, this is awesome. You can't make this for less than $20 million. And, and he goes, and I'll give you that $20 million if it's Ernest meets the Martians. I oh, said, really? Did he say it just that way? Yeah. And I said, I don't want to do Ernest meets the Martians. It's not about Ernest. It's about the Martians. Right. And we had DeForest Kelly on the line to play the old man. And it was mm -hmm. like, you don't get it. This is not an Ernest movie. It's the Russians are coming. The Russians are coming with little green men with DeForest Kelly as an old man who finds these Martians in his barn and blah, 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 blah. He said, well, good luck. So, oh, well, so now I got, how did it go from DeForest Kelly to Royal Dano? Well, it, it took about a year to finally, you know, as it happened, uh, my roommate at the time, Jason Clark, was working for a guy named Luigi Cingolani at a place called Smart Egg Pictures. And he goes, can I show him this script? And I said, sure, yeah, go ahead. So he shows him the script. He calls up, he, go, he comes home from work that day. He goes, Luigi wants you in his office tomorrow. So I go in and he says, Patrick, I love this. We're going to do it. I give you 1.75 million. I said, I need two. He goes, I'll give you 1.75 million. Who the fuck else is going to give you 1.75 million dollars? Nobody knows who you are. I'm going to give you 1.75. You want two? Fuck you. you know? And I'm like, so I go home and my, I talk to my wife, Carolyn Fahm. At, at the time and, and and i say yeah who the hell is going to give me 1.75 million dollars let's do it and i had john knoll and yeah. me and kenny myers and uh a, a shit ton of other amazing people that no one had ever heard of yet but are now all amazing yeah yeah you know, sonia hayes costume designer we had you know we had john knoll obviously we had um, i mean just a just all kinds pete kazajic uh, all the just massive amounts of people, you know, Kirk Thatcher, all these people that had kind of never gotten an opportunity to be the thing they wanted to be. They were always one step down. Yeah. Since I'd been given the job of director for the first time, I was like, well, why shouldn't you be instead of a wardrobe supervisor? You should be a costume designer. And John, no, mm -hmm. you've only worked as a visual effects artist. Why not be a visual effects supervisor? And you, you know, I just said, let's all go up a notch. Yeah. And so everybody gave me a million percent effort and we made this stupid little film that didn't have distribution. We didn't know what was going to happen to it. When it was done, we showed it to a couple of you know, buyers and they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then my, she wasn't even my manager at the time. She was a friend who was a kind of an infinite, infinite, I should say infamous manager. She was, she, Melinda Jason, who had, she was the one who had discovered the script for uh, Flashdance and given uh -huh. it to Don Steele. So she had a reputation and she was, she represented Chuck Pogue at the time. She, you know. We're going to get to Chuck Pogue and Dragonheart in a little she while. She saw the movie. She, she watched the movie and she says, I'm going to sell this movie tomorrow. And I was like, okay. 
So the next day, she rented a screening room in Century City. And she called up, I think the first person she called was Jeff Katzenberg, of all people. Right. And she had no idea that he knew of the project in the first place. And she says, Jeffrey, I, I'm confused. Why are you not sending anyone to my screening of my client's movie, Martians? He goes, what are you talking about? What, what movie? What? You, what? And she, she, she goes, oh. And he goes, yeah, I heard it. What, what do you mean? Screen? He did it? He made the movie? And she goes, yeah, but, I mean, we've told everybody about the screening. Other, I mean, Bruce Berman's sending somebody, and, and Tom Pollock at Universal is sending somebody. But he's like, I'll just, I'll send somebody, right? So mm-hmm. she then calls up Bruce Berman at Warner Brothers. And Warner Brothers goes, Bruce, why are you letting Jeffrey, like, just walk in and take this thing? He goes, what? What are you, what are you talking about? What? You know, yeah. and, 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 and she goes, Jeff Katzenberg apparently likes buying cool movies more than you do, but that's cool. He goes, all right, all right, I'll send somebody. And, and, and who else is sending people? She goes, well, Tom Pollock and uh, David Chasman and all. And she names the heads of all the major studios, right? And, he's, and, and then she calls each of them and does this trick to them, and they all fall for it, and they all send somebody. And by 4 o'clock that evening, we've got three offers for the film. And suddenly, I get a call from her saying, CAA wants to meet with you. Get over there right away. They've watched the movie. They grabbed the print from the screening. They literally, somebody took it from the screening to CAA. They watched it. Jay Maloney... Justin Connolly, Michael Wimmer, David Lovett, they, or all of them, the, the Young Turks were all in yeah. the room saying, we want to sign you. And I'm like, I, a, an hour ago, I had a movie that didn't have distribution and nobody knew who I was. And, you, and they're like, we want you now. You will sign with us. Okay. And I, everything's going fine. All of a sudden, the assistant to Jay Maloney peeks her head in the door of the screening room because we have a problem. Everybody goes, what's the problem? Jay runs out, he comes back in and he says, why didn't you guys invite Steven Spielberg's people? They've found out and they want to know why they weren't invited to the screening. I was going to ask how Spielberg played into it. And they want the print right now. So now we've got a courier running out to the screening room in Century City to grab the print. There's no DCPs. There's no online downloads. There's mm-hmm. there's one work print with sprocket holes in it and scratches <laughs> and tape. And, and so they grab it and they take it to Amblin. And that afternoon, evening, Steven and Max Spielberg watch it in the Amblin screening room. And that evening, I get a call. Steven loves your movie he called jeff katzenberg and told him he has to buy it and put it out under the touchstone label and make a disney supervised or an amblin supervised disney deal with me okay (laughs) sure (laughs) yay right and that's just the beginning of of the rest of the drama but that's what happened we went from we don't have distribution to Stephen wants it in fifteen hundred theaters. Jeffrey, do this, and Jeffrey said okay, and he did it. And That's it went weird. From, yeah, go ahead. No, no, it just it just went from we didn't know if we'd ever get picked up to now we're guaranteed a fifteen hundred screen release. Wow, very kind of Spielberg. Oh yeah, well, and it, we, <laughs> the funniest thing was. Because obviously I, I had met him yes. for a brief moment 
1977 while he was making Close Encounters. And I was then charged, once this had all happened, to go meet with Kathy Kennedy at Amblin. So I went on the, you know, the next day I went up to Amblin and I, you know, went through the, the layers of security. And I'm walking across the central courtyard at, at the Amblin complex, the Spanish, mm -hmm. you know, you know, and I'm walking across. And as I'm walking across to go to Kathy's office, Stephen comes out of a door and starts walking the opposite way. And I haven't seen him since 1977. And he's not going to recognize me. Yeah. And he walks by me. And I, 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 don't, I don't even make eye contact because, I, I, you know, I'm thinking this is a guy who doesn't want you to, like, right. don't target him, right? Mm -hmm. But he walks by and I, maybe it was the mom, the part of my mom's ambition that you'll see in the movie that mm -hmm. or her chutzpah, whatever, she, something overtook me and I thought to myself, this is stupid. Of course, I should say something. So he walks past. He's probably be 10, 15 feet past me. And I just turn around and I go, Steven? And he freezes in his tracks. Just, <clears throat> and I'm thinking, oh, shit. Because I'd already heard that, you know, I mean, the guy is worried about security. I mean, of course, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Like, and he slowly turns around like a gunslinger. And, and he looks at me and he goes, yes. I said, um, Patrick Reed Johnson, I directed the space Martians. The, the, and he goes, oh, oh, and he runs up and he goes, I love your movie. I love it. It's so fun. I, and by the way, don't think I didn't recognize all the homages. I saw the little truck go, and he goes on and he, he all these details and he's going, and he goes, and the girl, the little girl, he goes, who is she? Where did you find her? And I said, well, she auditioned and I thought she was good. He goes, I'm working with her. I'm going to find something for her. She's going to be in something. She's amazing. And I was like, yeah, you know? and so, and, and he goes, fantastic. Can't wait to work with you. Yay. See ya. And off he goes. <laughs> Man. Uh, you know, but so. Just, that's like an Academy Award. Yeah. Having Steven Spielberg stop and tell you how amazing you are forever, how long it is. It doesn't get much better than no. that. No, it never. It's it. It may never. Not the down. No, it, oh, it, it, oh, it won't. <laughs> I mean, it'll never get better. The only thing that's going to be better is that my film is finally, finally coming out on May twenty fifth, twenty twenty two. I'm not the boy who cried movie anymore. I mean, it's literally coming out then, and Steven's movie is coming out right about the same time. Yeah, his movie about him being a young guy making movies in his backyard, right. which my movie literally says, it literally has him saying, when I was a kid, I used to make these movies about aliens coming down to earth to destroy mankind. And it was really aliens coming down to, you know, my backyard to destroy my sisters. And uh -huh. I mean, he literally says all this in the movie. So either, either his movie is a trailer for my movie or my movie is a trailer for his. I'm not sure which, <laughs> but, but it's kind of awesome that, that they're going to be at least, married somehow so amazing it's awesome go ahead, i do want to i do want to go back to space invaders sure. real quick i know you talk about it quite a bit but royal dano really and i mentioned this earlier royal dano is one of my favorite character actors of all time I i'm mean, still I, here keep going oh no i just royal dano was just one of my favorite character actors of all time yeah and uh, i think i think he's a classic actor that has kind of been forgotten which yeah. is really sad because he was a phenomenal actor he yeah. was. I mean, we call them character actors, but some of the greatest 
actors we've ever had were character actors. Yeah, and that's I hate the title, but that's the only way we can classify them because they're just actors. He was never really a lead, except in my film. Um, And he he was he 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 was incredibly talented, inventive, enthusiastic, patient, um, inventive, um, and he loved working on the film. He loved it. Maybe he loved working on every film. I think that's probably it. I don't think my film was particularly special. I think that what he loved was doing the work. And if you met him on those terms and really let him invent and try and be in the moment, as opposed to just saying, I want this, this, and this, you know, he, he felt he was excited. He loved doing it. He just loved doing it. And and I and he couldn't have there nobody would have been better. DeForest Kelly wouldn't have been better. None of the other people we talked to would have been we you know th- there were a lot of people we ended up talking to before we decided on on on, on Royal. And he uh he was a really good guy. And I and I, I had more fun with him and he teased me mercilessly. Uh, <laughs> what did he because, tease you about? Well, just you know. I, it, it, it didn't matter. It, it I mean, it could be anything. It could be, you really think these Martians would do this like that? <laughs> but don't they know that dynamite's going to blow up their ship? You know, I mean, he was just, a, he would just needle me just for fun, even though he, he believed in the script. He believed in the, and he was so generous to the other actors. And he was generous to the damn dog. The dog bit him in one scene. Oh, like, really? It got, it got too excited and nipped him in the nose. And he just kept acting. He didn't go, all right, that's it. Fuck this. Cut. He was like, it was like, oh, it's okay. She's just excited, you know. You know? <laughs> and I tell you, I was re-watching it, and I was showing it to my four-year-old Sunday, and I was, I was trying to tell him, it's like, Daddy's going to interview, and he doesn't quite interview. I, I, I interviewed Tom Kenny, SpongeBob, two years ago, and I was trying to explain it to him, and he was arguing with me that I've never met SpongeBob because I don't have goggles <laughs> to go underwater. I am yeah. the less coolest thing on earth to him, like any <laughs> other child, right? Right. Right. I'm sure your children. I, I know how this works. Yeah, you know I'll tell you about my son's reaction to Dragonheart. You'll, you'll <laughs> oh, good. So I was watching the scene with the camera, Eddie's driving with the dog, and it still cracked me up. <laughs> it was my favorite scene I remember because I hadn't seen the movie in a long time, and I was still laughing again. I just wanted to give you a compliment, but also I'll say Royal was hilarious in that. Well, and you're right. No one else. It. He sold he, talking to the he, damn dog of, of trying to get the camera right. He's like, you know, oh, no, knock it off. You're wasting film, you know. Yeah, that's sort of what it's all off picture. camera. It's yeah. none of the dog's not even there when we're right. shooting. And he's, he's, he made it happen. He made it happen. Um, his, he committed, look, it's a stupid, goofy, sophomoric little comedy, but there's a heart to it. And it yeah. was a lot of it's his heart. He, when he is sitting there with the dog bones and he's he t- gives right. one to the dog and yep. takes one himself and he's eating, you know, and he's talking about it's all over. Losing you the farm. feel it. You go like, yeah. oh, my God, this, this hurts. You know, he he recognized, uh, like all good actors, that that good comedies are first and foremost good dramas first. Mm-hmm. And he really went for it. I mean, is it is it epically, you know, is it Academy Award material? No, but it's entertaining and he just wanted to entertain people yeah i just i just was watching it and i was again i just wanted to tell you 
you and him, that scene still holds up. Now, oh my God, we're already 45 minutes into it. So I know All you right. got time. Dragonheart. So oh. as a writer, yep. I am interested in the fact that you have this idea, brilliant idea, you go to write it. How hard is it for you to say, fuck it, I can't do this, I need another writer? Here's how hard it was. Um, when, when I pitched it to Raffaello, mm -hmm. you and those Italians, she said, Patrick, I don't have any money to pay you for a draft, but I do own a hotel in Bora Bora. Right. You know, my father built a hotel for Hurricane and on the island of Bora Bora, and they will send you and your writing partner there for two weeks, all expenses paid, do whatever you want, write the first draft. I was like, deal. <laughs> it's like, I don't, you don't have money, but you're going to send me to Bora Bora for two weeks with my writing partner and give us like, you know, bungalows over the water and all the food and drink and dancing and fun and shark feeding and sounds great what done right yeah but unfortunately we got down there and we were like i don't feel like writing i feel like going on the shark tour or i feel like dancing or <laughs> with the girls or i feel like you know what i mean it was like yeah. we didn't get a lot of work done and, and it, when it, it wasn't because we didn't want to want to work we did try <laughs> but what happened was i couldn't my idea was better than my grasp of the genre. Understood. I've never been a fantasy guy ever. I'm a sci-fi guy. Yeah. I want rules. I want science. I don't like magic. I don't like, you know, oh, we just can because you didn't know that this crystal will do this or the Eye of Sauron will do that. I, mm -hmm. that right? So that was part of it. And, and also, I wanted it to be steeped in a kind of Arthurian legend veil and, and even almost Shakespeare. I had just seen um, Brana's Henry V before I started writing this. Yeah. And I loved that version so much. I kind of wanted Dragonheart to have that tone. I didn't want it to sound like Shakespeare, per se, but I wanted it to have that energy and that there was this beautiful classical passion but you know i didn't want it to be silly i didn't want and, and i kept writing towards monty python i kept going mm. towards terry gilliam and it was funny but it wasn't deep yeah. and i wasn't and i knew i could get the emotion but i was afraid that what i couldn't get to was the stuff that was the main thrust of the film I knew I could go deep into the emotional areas and I knew I could do the tragedy and I could do the heartbreak, but I felt like every time I was working on the, the, the everyday workings of this story, I was moving towards comedy too much. I was trying too hard. Mm -hmm. And so I came back and said, Rafi, we need to, you know, we need another writer. It's a good idea. I know what the story is. I know what the elements are. I know what the characters, who the characters are, and what they're meant to be and do. But I'm not. I can't deliver. But thanks for the vacation. Yeah. <laughs> and and so we we my manager Melinda, who also managed Chuck Pogue, said, "Well, what about Chuck?" And I and I was like, "Jesus, I didn't even. I mean, I didn't even realize she knew Chuck, right? Mm -hmm. Let alone because she." So I said, "Let's send him. You know, the treatment." story let me meet with him and he and i got together and he loved it and he said i'm in and so we hired him and he did one draft one draft mm -hmm. he turned it in on a friday and by monday morning they had greenlit us 
heading to Spain to start scouting locations and going to England to start building the dragon with the Henson creature shop. And we were in, we were in flashing green light mode after three days. Yeah. After he turned in that draft. So oddly enough, we know Chuck, Hey, he lives, I won't say where he lives, but let's say it's outside of Lexington, Kentucky. It is. (laughs) He's and Chuck is amazing. And one of the greatest, smartest, coolest guys in the business, which is why he's no longer in Hollywood. Um, <laughs> you told us the story. Better than that. Yeah. But yeah. Well, that's good that you know him. He's hard to say that I know him. I actually probably know his wife slightly better. But yeah, we've met. We've talked. I think he called me a smart ass. Well, it's fine. We're good. That's good. If he called you a smart ass, you're in. Oh, really? I did, if, you didn't, if, you didn't, if he didn't like you. He wouldn't call you a smart ass. He'd call you something else. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a, it's a story I'll tell you later. Anyway, we're here for you. So, and, and it didn't happen with you. It ended up with Rob Cohen. You want to give us like the brief version of that and, and the hits and puppets? Oh, and that... oh I'm happy to. I hope he's watching. Um, <laughs> well, so Rob knew him that fast and the furious money. Yeah. Rob, yeah. <laughs> Rob had known Raffaella for years and, and, and his partner, uh, and crime had also known her and Rob used to sit he, he'd be hanging around Rafi's office when we were talking shop about the movie and I was doing storyboards and talking about production and talking about how we we're going to do this with Henson and what we're going to do at this location or that and he'd just be there like coming in and out just to say hi and he'd sometimes listen in and so what happened was this script was so popular that Universal had me meet every major male and female actor and you know actress mm-hmm. in Hollywood and London immediately. They were just coming through my. They would either come to my bungalow right next to Tom Cruise's bungalow, ooh, ooh. and uh, or, or or I would meet them at a location, you know, a secret location for drinks or dinner or lunch mm-hmm. or whatever. And I mean the list. Of, of, of people, oh my God, Sam Neill and Kevin Bacon and uh, who was the, the James Bond that, he only did one of them. Tim- I think Timothy Dalton? Timothy Dalton. Yeah. Timothy. Uh, uh, and then, of course, uh, uh, Pierce Brosnan and, I mean, all of these people, right? And meanwhile, I then meet this young actor named Liam Neeson. Liam has done one film at this point of any notice. I mean, he's done little parts. He's been, was it the, it, was it the one right over my shoulder? Was it dark man at the it time? Was dark man. Yeah. And universal hated him. <laughs> the movie hadn't even come out yet. And they were already not interested in him because they, it wasn't testing well. Oh, so Liam didn't know this. And what was happening was, and Liam was also anonymous because the dark man posters and the trailer and everything else you don't see them nope that's the it's, whole point of who dark man is dark man who yeah. is dark man where the bullboards <laughs> all over los angeles right so liam was very funny he had a button when i first met him he had it on his shirt it says i am dark man he had this button <laughs> printed up right that's awesome i've it never heard that story before Eric, oh it's sure. fantastic so he had i am dark man printed up as a button he's like pot i don't understand it i mean they're not showing my face i don't know what i'm gonna do they don't nobody knows who i am you know <laughs> i'm like i'm like they will they will trust me so you know the movie comes out and 
does okay ten dollars mm-hmm. you know and it's it's difficult for liam but now meanwhile liam and i are co-developing this movie because i'm convinced he is exactly right i'm thinking because i've already got sean connery sean connery i got first i got sean connery before i had anybody else attached to this movie right? i read that right what happened was i was because we have the same agent jay maloney was handling sean connery for CAA, and he was also my agent. One day I came in for a meeting with one of the other agents on another project, and Jay goes, Patrick, I need you to hurry, come with me. I need you to, to, to come with me for, for something. I said, Jay, I got to go meet Richard Lovett or whatever. I, and I'm sure who it was, but he goes, he goes, no, Patrick, come with me. And I said, Jay, I got to go, and then I got to go over here, and I got to mm-hmm. And he goes, Patrick, come with me. And he grabs me, and he takes me down this hallway, and he opens a conference room door flings it open shoves me in and slams the door behind me i'm like jay what the fuck i t-? <laughs> and across down right. this conference room table at the other end is this bald man with reading glasses and a script and he looks up and he goes i very much like your screenplay that's a damn you do do a damn Holy good shit. honor and, and i was like ah. and he goes this is very good and he said now are you planning on shooting it in Spain? Because that's where they got to shoot it. And I was like, I got to <laughs> And he says, and he, and he goes, the only reason I read this is I read your script Star Sailor, which, you, which Jay thought I should do, your big space epic. And he says, and he says, I will never again put on a space suit, never <laughs> after Outland. And he goes, but that got me to read this. And he says, I'm in. As long as you shoot in Spain and you listen to me as to who you should hire. Right. And I was like, okay, <laughs> but, you know, so I had Connery. Right. So now, meanwhile, I've got Liam who I believe in and, I, and I'm thinking Sean fucking Connery. And as this profoundly big, bold personality in this dragon meets this taciturn Irish knight. That's just, you know, all, crimped up and mm-hmm. pissed off and unable to express himself the way Connery does. And by the way, my idea for Connery doing Draco was not, oh, oh, I'm James Bond swallowed by a dragon. I saw that because they, they even wanted you to Bullshit. change about Quippy Goldberg, right? And, and they, they couldn't care less about Sean Connery. The people that were running Universal, Tom Pollock was like, who cares about Sean Connery? What if we did something original like Whoopi Goldberg? We have a deal with her. Now that's original. And I'm like, Whoopi Goldberg as the voice of a dragon in 10th century England? No. So, and, and they, they wanted to send the script to, to, to Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I said, uh. you do realize that this script has sentences in it, right? It doesn't have quips or uh-huh. one word or grunts. or it, it, it even has soliloquies. And I love, I love Arnold. He's great, but it was completely wrong, right? It's not the right casting. Nobody would have been better than Connery. And, and Connery was not meant to be James Bond swallowed by a a, a reptile. What, what Connery would have done if I had done the film and and we talked about it, Sean and I, which is, I, I think he didn't, he couldn't have cared less by the time it came back to him with Rob Cohen. He just, you know, they recorded all of his dialogue between mm-hmm. tennis matches in the Bahamas, you yeah. know, in a, in a pool house, you know, I, I wanted him to be a thing that was trying to 
struggle with this human language, right? Mm -hmm. This awful guttural stuff, right? That it was beneath him and he was great syllables and and consonants and it was going to be an animal attempting English, right? So much better than what it was. So, so I had him and Liam and I, meanwhile, are storyboarding the shit out of this movie and we're designing costumes and we're designing stunt sequences and we're, and we're, we're just killing it. We're just, we are making this movie little knowing yet that Universal doesn't want him, right? We don't know yet that Universal hates him until they say, so Patrick, uh, we sent it to Tom Paul, I mean, to uh, Tom Hanks. And I was like, you what? And they're like, yeah, we sent the script to Tom Hanks. And I said, for what? And they said to play Bowen. And I said, are you, what? Okay, A, you're making me look like an idiot. Tom Hanks is going to read the script and he's probably going to like it. And then he's going to say, what the fuck are you thinking of me for, for a 10th century English night? <laughs> he doesn't want to be, you know, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, you know? <laughs> if the sheriff comes back tomorrow, I'll name him Two Socks. You know, I mean, it's just, he... <laughs> I said, he's going to think I'm a dork for thinking he should be in my movie. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. He loved the script and he, and he said, what are you thinking? No, of course, no, of course I will not be this character. It's, and, you know, so they said, well, who do you want? Cause we got in a lot of fights cause of the Arnold thing and the Tom thing. I said, I want Liam Neeson. And they all looked at each other and Tom, Tom Pollock says, Liam Neeson. He's never going to amount to anything. He's not a lead actor, son. You, you have to understand. He's a character actor at best, and maybe not even that. And I'm going, you're wrong. He's great. He gets this. He wants to do it. He'll be amazing. And him against Connery is a pairing unlike anything you could imagine. And, 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 and I said, if, you, if he's going to be a star, and you're going to regret this no 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 and i said well if you're not gonna let liam doing it do it then i'm not doing it they're like oh good we were hoping you'd say that you're fired you're paying played thank you bye because they wanted me off of it anyway i'd made one two million dollar movie at this point and they wanted they'd already been secretly sending it to tony scott ridley scott steven spielberg richard donner even Kenneth Branagh, who, by the way, I had cast already. I had Kenneth Branagh as Einan, right? I had Elizabeth Hurley as Kara, right? So much. Branagh said, "Yeah, I'll direct it for ten million dollars," and they're like, <laughs> "Nope, never mind." So now, so meanwhile, so I'm fired and pay or played. I got paid to not direct my project. Yeah. And suddenly, and so now they're running around to different directors. They went to you know Donner. They went to you know, Donner, Richard, and I like, I mean, God bless him. He was a great guy and a terrific director. And he probably would have done a beautiful version of the movie. But one of the things they wanted was to go for, because Jurassic Park had come out. They wanted to go all CG with the dragon. Uh And I had talked, I mean, I'd already talked to ILM and John Noel and and John had said, yeah, we can do the movie for, you know, if you want to spend 60 million just on the effects. I said, no, they're letting me, they're only going to let me spend 13 million to make the movie. $13 million was the budget cap for Patrick Johnson making Dragonheart. Right. With Sean Connery, Liam Neeson, and a talk is a talking dragon. 
which amazingly, Raffaella could never get the budget below 15. She tried really hard, but could never <laughs> quite get it below 15, no matter how hard she tried. So meanwhile, Rob Cohen's sitting in the wings. He get They finally get around to him, and I think that was, are we talking five or six years later? I think it was, I don't, was it Years, eight? yeah. It was, it was 96? I think so. That's not we right. Were, this was 1990 we were developing it, mm-hmm. right? So they finally come around to, to Rob. He gets his big chance. And he takes it over. <clears throat> and the first thing he does is, is try to extinguish me. He does articles where he says, and like, there was one in, not Starlog, but in, in, it's like, I don't know what it was called, like sci-fi observer. <laughs> I don't know what the uh-huh. fuck it was. There, but, well, there used to be a ton of magazines that are no longer here, right? right? There was yeah, some yeah. magazine where he said, yeah, you know, I've been, you know, I, I got involved after, um, you know, there was this great script by Chuck Pogue and somehow this film student, Pat Johnson, got attached to it somehow and, and, and kind of took it down this weird road and then they didn't make it with him. And then and it was something I had always wanted to do. And by the time he was done with his publicity campaign, it was a project he'd been developing for a decade. And, you know, uh-huh. I wasn't, you know. I mean, he literally, and he knew full well that it was my idea that I had hired the writer that I don't know. And he literally tried to sell it as that somehow he, that I was, he literally said a film student named Patch. I was never a film student, by the way, um, named Pat Johnson, who somehow got attached to this great script. So meanwhile, (laughs) it's now, you know, six years later and Liam Neeson is a superstar. Yep. So, Rob and and the entire upper echelon of Universal and Raphael take ask Liam to go to dinner at Chasen's or Morton's or I don't know whatever. And I know this happened because one of the executives who realized how badly they had fucked me <laughs> yeah. was at this dinner and told me about this. This is why. The Irish are so cool and why Liam is so cool. So they took $15,000 dinner and they wine and dine him and Rob proceeds to pitch him his vision of the movie. And as part of that, he pulls out these big binders of storyboards and he's flipping through these storyboards, showing him all these action sequences that he's designed, right? And Liam's going, I, I, oh, look at that, oh, mm. And Liam knows full well that the storyboards he's looking at were drawn by he and I. Mm-hmm. And, and Rob is saying they're his. And finally, at the end of all this nonsense, Liam looks around and he goes, well, <clears throat> let me just ask this question. He goes, where's Patrick? And they're like, Patrick who? And he goes, Patrick Reed Johnson, the guy who came up with all this the guy I worked with in developing all this. And they're like, oh, I, he, he got busy with other projects and decided to move on. And, he, and Liam knew full fucking well that I had thrown myself under the bus for him, right? Yeah. And he goes, oh, that's too bad. His version would have been really great. Thanks for dinner. Bye. <laughs> he left. That's great. Yeah, he's a good guy. That's, that's a really good guy. And, and you know, he didn't have to. He could have taken the paycheck, but he didn't want to work with people who were that nefarious, you know? Yeah. He's he's a pretty 
honest dude, Liam. Yeah, and unfortunately, he didn't get to go do anything else after that. It's yeah, you know, it's too bad. If only, if only, yeah. I mean, I guess they were right about him. He certainly didn't make any money for any studios after that. (laughs) The man is literally still kicking ass in his sixties. Well, there is talk. Yeah, talk. There's an idea. Did you ever see Robin and Marion? Yeah, with Sean Connery. Oh, oh! It's boy. That'd be a damn good movie with him. That would be. Yeah. What if it had a dragon in it? Yeah. (laughs) What if? I don't know. What if? What if he rebooted Dragonheart with? I don't know. And what if King Einan was Owen's son? Yeah. Like the queen. And what if? Anyway, whatever. Never mind. Well, it's not that we're talking about doing any of that. I'm really excited. I won't say any more. I won't push it because I you've given us so much and we've had you an hour and seven minutes, but we both have. Can you give I, us two more I, questions? Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. No problem. Right. Okay. Chad. All right. Go ahead, so Chad. Uh, Patrick, you managed to direct two films that have a significant impact on my childhood. The first being space invaders. And then of course the second one uh, to give you a little background, I just got to tell you this background of this. Sure. Um, I had just finished it, Stephen King's It. I was looking for a kind of wind-down book, and I happened to go to my, my school library, and I found athletic shorts. And the number one story out of all those, the, the, the compilation of those stories was the one on Angus. And, you know, brief, and then... Brief then, moment then, in the life of Angus Bethune. Yeah, and the movie came out, and I was 15 years old. It really spoke to me. I kind of had a very similar experience of angus i was the fat kid i got picked on uh the girl i had the ultimate crush on in high school looked just like uh i'm ariana richards is that ariana richards yep ariana richards you know and you know my grandfather had just recently passed away Mm. so this movie had a significant impact on me and i just wanted to talk about how you got attached to it maybe a story of 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 directing those two legends in that film and especially that you know that that was that has one of the and also, screw you, sir, because that's the first movie that ever made me cry. So <laughs> you, now you've just hit on why I did it. Yeah. So what happened was, and this is worth taking the time to tell you. And I, love to hear it. I really appreciate you asking. So I was finishing up Baby's Day Out, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I actually knew was going to be a disaster. <laughs> um, How did you was, know? I knew because... Actually, Steven Spielberg predicted it for me well, well, well before I ever took it. He, in that meeting in the courtyard at, at Amblin, Steven said, for your next movie, they're going to want you to do something huge. They're going to offer you a $50 million movie. You movie. Make a $5 million movie. Don't make a 50. They're going to come at you. Don't do it. And I said, okay, Steven, cut to, you know, we want you to do Baby's Day Out. It's $50 million. I'm like, yeah, special effects, $50 million. I'm a superstar. Wrong. And, uh, and there were so many problems with that film that were script-oriented that, that John was willing, not willing to face. That bastard uh, John Hughes. Sorry. I, everybody gone. I, I'm, yeah, but he but, – but so what happened was I was a known quantity at this moment. 
right. known enough and I was the director of a $50 million John Hughes movie that hadn't come out yet. And I was on a plane coming back from Chicago to LA for something and I saw Cool Runnings. Mm-hmm. I thought this is really good. I, it shouldn't be good, but it's pretty good. I it's mean, exactly it's not, what I thought when I saw Cold Runnings too. It I, like, be good. I don't want to like this, but gosh, Same I here. do. I, I, and John I was like, oh my god! I saw it on the. I was like, okay, here we go. We'll watch a little of this, and I kind of got drawn in, and I kind of went, well, you know what? They pulled it off. They pulled it off. They yeah. shouldn't have. It shouldn't work. But it does, and I called my manager when I landed and because I knew she knew Don Steele who'd produced it very well because she'd given Don Steele flash dance mm-hmm. and so I said would you just do me the favor of saying that your client Patrick Reed Johnson just wanted to say well done you made my flight not only tolerable but you have got a tear in my eye and I laughed and I I was entertained I was entertained by something that shouldn't have worked and I thought that was kind of miraculous right so she goes, yeah, I'll tell her. So the next day I get a call from my manager because Don Steele says you're having lunch today at so-and-so place. And I'm like, oh, oh shit. And she goes, no, she said she has to meet you. I was like, okay. So I go to lunch with Don Steele at some highfalutin Beverly Hills restaurant. And we hit it off. And she says, you and I are having a relationship. We are going to do something. We're, we're making a movie. And I was like, okay. And two days later, I had been scheduled to go on a road trip with my my wife and my 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 two-year-old son up the California coast. And I get a call. Melinda says, Where are you? We have to send you, we have to FedEx you a script. Don Steele insists that we send you a script. I said, Well, I'm I don't know where I am at this point. I'm I'm somewhere up in you know, Half Moon Bay or something on the way to San Francisco, but I'm only here for a few hours. She goes, you've got to stay somewhere overnight so that we can send you this script. What script? It's called Angus or A Brief Moment in the Life of Angus Petune. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know about the short story. I did, we, we, we vectored into some, I don't know where, where it was, some, some town in Northern California way up the coast and we stayed the night so that we could wait for a, a FedEx delivery of this script and I got it. My wife drove for a couple hours and I read it and I thought, you know, Jill Gordon wrote her original draft was a really good script, but it was mm-hmm. a Wonder Years episode expanded and it was and it was good. I mean, it had it had, all, it had a lot of really great stuff and no ending. I mean, the original ending was they get to the dance, you know, Rick pushes him around a little bit and goes, "I can't hit you." but I can do this. And he grabs him and gives him a big Bugs Bunny kiss and everyone starts dancing and laughing. And that's the end. Oh, that would have been terrible. And it didn't have the experiment. It didn't have the little red element in the sea of blue and the Petri dish. It didn't have, it didn't have a lot of things that it needed. And beyond that, it was in my mind out of my wheelhouse. It didn't have any visual effects. It wasn't, Mm-hmm. sci-fi it wasn't adventure it, it, it was it was drama uh drama comedy drama but at the heart of it what what appealed to me was that it had a it had the elements of a really good moving coming of age story mm-hmm. you know? but but it was going to need a lot of work and i was terrified of it so i i called and i said no 
I said, I, I, I would love to work with Don Steele, but I'm terrified of this. And, and the biggest problem that I had was that in the original iteration, as, as you may know from the short story, Angus's father wasn't dead. He was gay right. and married to another man. And his mom was a lesbian truck driver. And he had all these mixed signals and it was fantastic. And I loved every bit of that. And I also knew it being 1994 or whatever it was, that this was going to be an uphill battle. And I, and I, and I, so I said, no, I got a call from Melinda. Melinda said, Dawn says, you can't say no because she's Dawn Steele and you're going to do this movie. <laughs> and, I, and I said, I, I, I don't. And she goes, she'll double your salary from baby's day out. She'll double your salary. <laughs> I, I made $350,000 to direct baby's day out. So I was going to get whatever, 700,000 700, to do yeah. Angus which was a movie that had a third of the budget. It's only like a $13 million movie, right? Uh-huh. Right. So I'm in. And we went crazy and went around the country looking for Angus and meanwhile casting, you know, Kathy Bates and, 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 and George C. Scott and Rita Moreno and all mm-hmm. these other tremendous actors um, for a teen comedy. Yeah. <clears throat> and Angus, I found in a Wendy's, off the I-94 tollway in Northern Illinois on the way home from O'Hare airport at two in the morning, going to visit my parents after, because we'd searched New York, Los Angeles, all these other places. And I'm standing in line at a Wendy's and there's some kid holding court and making, you know, and entertaining the girls behind the counter, big heavy kid. And yeah, I walked up to him and said, Hey, want to be in a movie? And he looks at me and he goes, what kind of movie? <laughs> like he was like, we talked later. He goes, I thought you were like some porn guy. It was like, no. But, um, and he was in a bad situation too, right? He's, oh, he was, he didn't have the greatest childhood. He had a horrible welfare, childhood. Welfare family. It was a bad scenario. You I talk mean, about luck. He's just happened to be at the same, at the right place at the right time. And you right just happened to be open-minded enough to realize I've just met him. What he lacks in probably I, I, training you can nuance and help direct through it just to get his natural self out of it. It was, it was the jumps at the chance. It was the fact that he wasn't trained because I'd seen hundreds of trained actors. Yeah. Who all had a shtick about being fat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it was a defense mechanism and it was a coping mechanism and it was not real and it wasn't honest and it wasn't vulnerable. It Mm -hmm. was, it was a way of deflecting and this, kid charlie didn't have any of that what he had was life and he like chad had fallen in love in kindergarten with this girl that he'd been in love with through all of middle school you know, grade school middle school high school and then finally got a chance to dance with her at like that's the spring dance in senior year or something and it i will was, say i didn't get that opportunity <laughs> yeah I, yeah but he didn't end up with her just the way yeah, that's and, true and, and and he didn't have any chops. What he no. had was experience. And he had life and he had heart and he had this vulnerability that was so true and real. And then pairing him, you know, with Chris Owen, you know, who also was one of the most honest performers I'd ever worked with. It was just this young kid who had also been dealt some blows in mm-hmm. life as a, you know, and they were a team. The minute you put them together, they just became 
they were buds. It wasn't an act. They were each other's knights. You know, they would do anything for each other and they looked after each other and they cared about each other. And, uh, um, you know, for me, it was an opportunity to, you know, to really dig into the there is no normal thing. And that's why I came up with the whole experiment and the, the Bethune theory, all that stuff that was not in the script. Right. And, and the ending, which, you know, I did like 13 drafts of the script while we were in pre-production. Um, and, and the ending, and there were other things that, that got cut. I mean, for one thing, you know, Rick is so unbelievably sadistic that part of you is like, what's his fucking problem? I mean, if he just leave it alone, this kid wouldn't even get any attention, right? right. Well, there was stuff in the original material that Jill had put in where the fa- he had a very disapproving, stern, manly father, right? And I thought to myself, huh, here's the problem. What we ought to do is make it that Rick is probably gay. Yeah. And he's terrified of it. Yeah. He's terrified that there's a kid that is comfortable with it because his father is and his mother is. And he's terrified that people, his, you know, the girl he's supposed to be in love with and his buddies, they're all going to, he's mortified and he needs to destroy anyone who is anywhere near that. So we could, we ended up not doing any of that. Uh, And then of course, the very first test screening of the film, you got to understand New Line, before I even got a board, they bought all the ad space they were going to buy for this film on like MTV mm-hmm. for teens. And this is a movie starring three Oscar winners, all of whom are in their 60s or more or 70s, yep. right? Right. And, and, and a bunch of kids you've never heard of, right? I was lucky that Ariana said yes. I, I just called her. You know, she'd gone from Space Invaders to Steven doing what he said he would do and putting her in a little movie. Mm-hmm. And now she was a superstar, at least at that, po- at that point. She was huge, right? Yeah. And I called her up and I said, would you mind doing And she goes, of course. Abso- I mean, yes, absolutely. I'm doing this movie. Wasn't even a negotiation, mm-hmm. which was amazing. She's, a, she's an amazing human being. And I said you guys are selling to the wrong audience. Yeah. I said, teenagers don't want to cry in movie theaters. Yeah. In fact, it's the last thing they want. They will avoid it at all cost because it's too vulnerable. I said, who, I'll tell you who's going to love this movie. Some college students, if they're alone or with a select group of friends, people just out of college, mm-hmm. and it's going to increase exponentially with each decade. Right. And they're like, no, no, it's a teen movie. And I said, okay. So they tested it with teens and it was in the toilet. Nobody wanted it. And I said, could you please test it in anything but a teen audience? No, it's a teen film. We're marketing to teens. All of the people at the studios and everywhere else, you know, forget it, get the gay thing out of it. And that's the movie we ended up with. And, Uh and, 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 and there are, things I'm super proud of in there. And there are things that I just, that just make me it just break my heart. Mm. And you know, for me, like I said, the whole, the whole scene where what happens to George C. Scott 
that is a moving scene. And then the, the ending where, you know, is, is powerful to me, just Angus going after him. Well, I wrote that. I it's wrote amazing. That. And I, and I, and it, and then that's not to take away from Jill Gordon. The, the yeah. bones of that movie are so strong. The only reason I was able to write that ending was that everything she did suggested it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was the, it was the scene with Angus talking about having his moment with his grandfather, yeah. that one continuous shot and this kid who'd never acted in his life doing in one continuous take that whole speech. Yeah. You know, that, that was enough to launch my gears to, to create the ending that, that we, we ended up with. It's great. And thank you. And, and but I and look, I it's hard. You know, it's hard for me to talk about Dawn because I loved her actually. Right. And and mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I we fought, and she died. And so she's not here to defend herself. And there were reasons that were practical and commercial and 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 and, and whatever tactical for her that that aren't even necessarily cynical. They're just survival in Hollywood, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not, I was not good at surviving in Hollywood. I was only good at saying, I, I believe this is what we should be doing. Yeah. And that's not always popular, you know, in Hollywood. So I, when I talk about this, it's not to try to submarine her, torpedo her. She got a lot of amazing things made and she, and she believed in me and she supported me up to a point. And then we disagreed. And, you know, if she were here, we'd have it out, you know, um but she was i mean she was a force of nature for sure in a oh, good yeah. way you know and and she gave me a lot of creative freedom even within those confines of of, of the practical reality of what was being demanded of her by the studio so it's a tough one but i'm yeah. really glad you liked it I, i'm really proud of it i get letters from all over the world from people saying how did you know what it was like to be me um, I, I, from literally Botswana and Lapland and, you know, Russia and South America. And I said, I didn't, I knew what it was like to be a teenager and I believe, and I, I wanted to capture that. And, um, it, I, I get letters from sociology teachers. And I, this one guy says, I use it in my college class to teach deviance. And I thought deviance, that sounds awful. He goes, no, deviance is beautiful. Deviance doesn't mean you're a crazy person who kills people. Deviance is I'm not one of the many. I'm one of the few or the one. I'm the I, I will go my way, even if it means being shunned by everybody else. You know, yeah. That was powerful to me. So um, and I would do it again. And, and in fact, Charlie and I are, are, are dear friends and we talk all the time, hang out. He was just up in my neighborhood on his way back from New York doing a show, he stopped uh, with some posters for me to sign to take to some fans and, and uh, where he's got a really, really smart idea for a sequel. And, and we've been mucking it around and, and or, or even a series, kind of a Cobra Kai kind of thing uh -huh. that is, I, I so want to tell it to you because, but I, I'm not gonna, I'm going to tell it to you secretly, but I'm not going to do it in the podcast because it's okay. so good and so funny and so much an inversion of the original that it, 
I mean, it's profoundly cool. It would make it, it would people would love it. And, and even if you hadn't seen the original film, but if you've seen the original film and which you could use moments of in the series to, you know, yeah, perpetuate the story. But it's 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 a very clever idea, um, which, which I'll tell you about another time. Awesome. Patrick, do you I, have anything else or I have tons, but we've done an hour and a half, bud, and I have to respect your time. I mean, I, I honest to God, we were going to ask about Austin Pendleton. We, we're just we had uh, a th- I mean, well, let's just do another one when you're hey, ready. Hey, bud, we'll do it whenever you're ready. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, you, we, we can do a weekly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a lot of material. <laughs> hopefully this hasn't been too, hopefully this, what we'd like to feel is that this has been a better experience than you thought it would be. Oh, well, I thought it would be great. And I really enjoyed this. And I, I do, I don't do that many of these, but this, I can honestly say was one of the more enjoyable ones just because you guys have really cool questions and um you know it's relaxed and you're not out for gotcha stuff and you know no, 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 no. Not that at all and, yeah i mean we didn't even we we've kind of brushed over dead heat we i didn't even get oh to talk about dead it. heat yeah. would be fun to talk about we, yeah I'll tell you what let's just i'll tell you what i'm now that i'm settled back into uncsa and and the teaching thing and i've got and i've shot uh i should show you this you might enjoy this i'm going to show you something nobody has seen we're just going to come to North Carolina and hang out or wherever, yeah, you, may well, wherever you very well may be. So, so I'm going to show you something that I just shot like two days ago. And it, it's right now it's terrible. It's not composited. It's not. It's Patrick, just you should see our short films with okay. failed filmmakers. This is the raw element. I am. This is the, the two of the five shots that are raw elements for a moment that's been upgraded significantly in 52577 and we just shot this hang on i'm gonna it's all right oh oh you gotta let me share oh okay so while we're doing this while we're doing this yeah you gotta um, make him a co-host i want you to tell us real quick about your upcoming projects and i'm gonna make you the co-host right now and tell us what you've got coming up well finally after almost 20 years yeah. <laughs> 52577 will be released on 52522, the 45th anniversary of Star Wars. It was supposed to come out this last May, but because of COVID and some other little financial issues that got taken care of, thank God, we finally have paid for the $2 million worth of music that we've got for about, Ooh. it's it, thanks to Alan Parsons and some other friends. Um, we didn't pay $2 million. But it's no. about two million dollars worth of music in normal movie music budget. Um, yeah, Queen and Super Tramp and the Beatles and Alan Parsons and Ambrosia and you name it. It's, it's awesome. It's, bud. So it's coming out. I don't have to be the boy who cried movie anymore. So that's coming and theaters everywhere. It's theatrical, foreign, DVD, Blu-ray. It was funny because they said to me the distributor said, "Look." If you're ready, we'll bring it out in October, November, or whatever. You know, let's let's do it. We said we'd bring it out. We'll do that for you. But everybody we talked to is like, why would you dump it in November when you could wait five, six more months and come out on the 45th anniversary of Star Wars? And I was like, oh yeah. god, oh no, I have to say that I'm moving in a year. <laughs> and they're like, they're like, yeah, but 
look, if it was the 44th anniversary or the 46th anniversary, we'd be like, eh, but it's the 45th, right? And you know Lucasfilm's <laughs> going to do a lot of heavy lifting, right? Yeah. yeah. It, you're going to sell a few extra copies. Let's just be honest. I mean, right. and they I'm are okay. in the... They are in the business to make some money, right, hey, bud? And I love them, and they have been very, very nice to me, and I have, have good, good relations with them. So, um, you know, and George himself approved all the use of all the Star Wars stuff. The Kubrick family gave me permission. I'm only the second film in history to be able to use footage from 2001. That's a, a whole other story I want to get into. The next, it's time a we'll really talk about. well that covers what i'm about to show you so okay go ahead so again literally raw footage i just shot the other day um and it won't make much sense yet but maybe it'll make you wonder hang on let me just see share screen uh here we go hang on there we go you got you should see something there it is okay Uh so now let me make sure i've got the sound being shared because you never you don't want to not have okay here we go all right so (laughs) i hope you like it here we go pull it back to the very beginning here it's two angles of five that we shot and i'll tell you what it all means in a second so here we go Neither of you have seen the film, right? No, no, no. We just—I've seen the trailer, and I've tried. Yeah, honestly, that's a thing. That's a whole other question. I get it. Why is it so hard to find a lot of your movies streaming? Well, this one because we haven't released it yet. But no, but the rest I mean, of them. Yeah. Um, well, it's weird. I mean, Space Invaders finally got—I don't know if they got auctioned off or whatever. You know that that um, it got released by uh, Kino Lorber. Uh-huh. 35th anniversary blu-rays but special edition behind the scenes right. making of interviews all that it was really nice so that finally got something i mean it was it was a huge release in vhs back in 1990 uh-huh. uh and it, and it did fine it made a thousand percent of its money back yeah um, um angus well baby's day out also did really well in video it didn't do well in the theaters at all um for for a lot of reasons one it came out against the lion king mm-hmm. um angus also went through a thing where for a minute warner brothers was selling it as like a you know you order it and they press a dvd for you or they yeah their know. archive collection yeah but then it got bought it got it got auctioned somebody some private investor in like utah or colorado bought the rights to it and really? sat on and 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 still has them i think it's just gone 
It just doesn't exist. I don't think you can, you might, it, it may, I, I may have heard that it's streaming on maybe iTunes or, or Apple TV. Um, I think you can stream it on I, uh, iTunes yeah. um, and um, Vudu. Yeah. And then, and then, uh, you know, what else is there? There's, <laughs> well, I don't know. And I got off on a tangent here. Uh, let me, let me, so, back to what we were just about to end with is yeah. though you've got this coming out it's almost there we're there i'm excited for you I, i'm, I mean, I'm ex yeah i thank you i mean it's uh people <laughs> as i said before you know steven's movies coming out he's yeah. making his movie about making movies in his backyard and people say well why did it take so long and my 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 new quote and i hope steven will take it with the grain of salt firmly lodged in my cheek and, and, and the wink in my eyes is like well it wouldn't have been fair to bring my movie out and not wait for steven to catch up and make his <laughs> <laughs> that's okay <laughs> that's um, perfect i i don't know whose movie is going to come out first and I don't care. I'm, I'm, I'm delighted. It's going to be right roughly the same time. Cause like I said, either people will either see my movie and get a glimpse into what they're going to see with Stevens or they'll see Stevens. And then when they see mine, when he comes into the show, you'll be like, Oh my God, everything he's saying we know about. Cause we saw Steven's amazing movie. Right. Right. It reminds me. If, I don't know if you know about this, but when, um, when Jurassic Park was about to come out, and is this the carnosaur? Yeah, you know about the carnosaur story. Well, I I, well, I heard of Corman do it, but I don't want to oh. ruin it for you. So, right, so Roger Corman is on the the Tonight Show, <laughs> yeah. and he's and he's promoting carnosaur, and Johnny's like, so what? Uh, you know, what do you want to say about your movie before you go? And he goes, well, if you see one movie about dinosaurs this year it should probably be jurassic park <laughs> and he goes but if you see two movies about dinosaurs see carnosaur and it was the perfect homage to steven yeah. while still ripping him off completely <laughs> yeah yeah I, oh. anyway i met corbin a few years ago thank you so much for your time so we're gonna i have you on record saying that we're going to do another one of these in yeah. the next few and, weeks seriously all right, Abe, we're going to hang out and we're going to do this, right? Yep. Monday, any, any, any Sunday, Monday, sometimes Tuesday, but any Sunday or Monday night, we can have a series. I don't care. I got, got a lot to tell you, actually. I, <laughs> oh, actually, man. I'm so excited. So, and next time we'll have James here. Patrick, thank you so much for your time. Thank oh, you, Patrick. It was a pleasure. It was so much fun. All right. Thank I you, love, guys. I'm going to push stop real quick. Grrrr. <laughs>